Hello. Welcome to Rainbow Speaks, Rainbow Stage's first ever Rainbow Stage podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very official. <laughs> My name is Quinn Joseph. My name is Kara Joseph. And we are your hosts and your soon-to-be best friends. Yeah. At least for the next hour or, or so. so. Yeah. <laughs> So Rainbow Stage decided to do this podcast because they wanted to start highlighting some uh, local theater talent, some uh, Manitoba theater talent, some Canada theater talent, and talk about some stories and things going on in a post-pandemic sort of world. Mm -hmm. And And, uh, apparently we're the perfect people to do it. According to them. I don't know... Why? Why? <laughs> um, but a little bit about us. Um, I, as I said, my name is Quinn Joseph. I am a theater creator. Uh, I've done professional theater and independent theater and uh, as an actor and performer and uh, composer and writer. And I'm also a, uh, a drama teacher. Wow, he does it all. Um, and I'm Kara Joseph. I am also a theater creator, performer, teacher, and I am an arts administrator. I work as the training programs manager at Creative Manitoba. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. That's us. That's Rainbow Speaks. So good night. No, <laughs> so, not yet. No, we have a whole right. episode planned. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. Not good night. Yeah, but without further ado, let's get speaking. <laughs> And today's episode is on pandemic pivots. The year was 2019. The electricity in the air was palpable. Winnipeg theatre community was abuzz with brand new artistic directors, up-and-coming independent companies, and the willingness to take artistic risks. This upward momentum was predestined for one thing and one thing only. A global pandemic that devastated healthcare systems, economies, governments, and unsurprisingly, artistic communities. Those of us who were able to continue working in the art sector tried to scrape by with live stream productions. We strained our imaginative brains by pretending Zoom was a stage. We wore masks to perform to our audiences, and our audiences wore masks to attend, meaning that they saw performers with half of their faces exposed, only able to act with their eyes and muffled voices, and we saw them with half their faces exposed, staring seemingly unmoved by our every action. For all intents and purposes, theater was dead. I know, I know, we're being a little dramatic, but it's a theater podcast, so what did you expect? Our art form was struggling to keep up with the ever-changing COVID-19 riddled world. Then, through brilliant human innovation, and subsequently large pharmaceutical companies taking credit for brilliant human innovation, vaccines were created and things started to change. Public spaces started to open up again, auditions were being held, productions were being cast, and eventually we got back to a place like Rainbow Stage on opening night of The Wizard of Oz, an absolutely packed house that was incredibly warm and receptive to a tale about friendship and adventure performed by an entirely Manitoban cast. So, everything was back to normal, and theater was alive and well again, right? Unfortunately, not so simple. Like anything this multifaceted, there's more nuance to the return of theatre. There are highs and lows, unexpected twists and turns, complications along the way that require more innovation and more adaptation than ever before. And so, here to talk to us about those highs and lows, as well as their innovation, their adaptation, we are pleased to welcome Rainbow Stage's Artistic Director, Karsten Natras, and Manitoba Theatre for Young People's Artistic Director, Pablo Felices Luna. Wow. Welcome. What an introduction. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so exciting to be in something that is literally one of these pandemic pivots. Like, yeah. Born of the the country's and the government's ability to support the arts through this really difficult time, here we are uh, having a conversation about it, <laughs> hopefully moving forward in a really positive way. Well, you talk about here we are and, you know, all of the adjustments we've had to make over the last few years. Well, here I am on Zoom because I'm running a bit of a cold and in, in our current world, I couldn't join you in the studio. So if that's not like perfect timing for this podcast, <laughs> I don't know what is. Pandemic pivots, here we are. That's yeah, what right? we're talking about. Uh, but before we get into it, let's. I would like to talk to you guys about what got you into this role in the first place. Why artistic direction specifically and kind of how you landed these gigs? I first became an artistic director of a different company in Ontario and... Uh, I had worked for that company for uh, a number of times as a freelance artist. And I love the work so much that, you know, my wife and I occasionally would say things like, wouldn't it be great if someday 
I could do that job because I started to get a sense of what it was all about. It was a, a next step for me in separating my own artistic interest from, from, to something greater, to actually make things possible for other artists, which really excited me. So when I came to MTYP, which is a, a larger theater than the one I was at before, I had what I would call uh, a larger sandbox to play in, more opportunities for artists, uh, both local and, you know, we have a presentation series so we can bring in companies from across the country and all around the world. So for me, that's been the, the key thing, that there's a, a draw when you become an artistic director to also facilitate, to create opportunities, to explore the artistic expression of other people in your community, which I love. For me, I come from a family that had a, a very prominent theater performer in it. So I have a, an aunt who's an opera singer. And so I grew up being taken to the concert hall and seeing opera. And she started her career at the at Manitoba Theater Center back in the 80s. And so I decided I would go into sports. And <laughs> I'm not kidding. So I auditioned for Godspell at Prairie Theatre Exchange without telling anybody in 1999. Landed it, which was like a shock to basically everyone in the family. Mm -hmm. I never had an eye on, on the artistic directorship because I was really focused on my career as an actor and a writer. And until this incredible theatre that I now get to work at provided... I don't know, the magic of these like 2000 seats where families were introduced to theater, yeah. which is something I'd love to talk to with you about, Pablo, because like you're the birthplace of our love for what we do. And I feel like Rainbow also has a bit of that journey with families coming in. When the role came up, when I applied for it, it had become a halftime position, which I think limited to local applic right, right, applicants, absolutely. which I think I could segue into into how I view this theater in terms of being dedicated to Manitobans. I feel really grateful that I've been able to steward the last few years. I mean, that's those are both wonderful stories. I think kind of to segue into the the more pandemic specific part of this episode, uh, something you said, Pablo, that was interesting was the idea of taking your own artistic vision uh, and your own personal interests and sort of separating that from that of a larger community. And I think that's something that's really, I guess I'll say poetic or universal in terms of how a lot of us feel uh, from the pandemic as a whole of uh, for things to get better, it had to be a number of people sacrificing their own personal interests. And so there's a lot of that give up the individual for the better of the community or the betterment of the community. And I'm sure that comes up a lot in artistic direction specifically of you as an artist might want to do this this and this but as an ad you're beholden a lot more to uh i mean the interests of your subscribers the interests of your board mm -hmm. um and generally just keeping the thing running and alive um, <laughs> especially now <laughs> especially like... now i guess my first question before we get into more specific pandemic stuff uh is are there things that you think of right off the top of your heads that's like I'm I'm I've made this sacrifice, this personal vision sacrifice, or has it sort of slotted in nicely where your personal vision of what you thought this was going to be going into the job and what it's become uh, have you know run in lockstep in a in a sort of harmonious way? If I may, I don't know about sacrifice per se. You know, like I feel like that's a fairly strong word. One of the things that you learn as an artistic director, or that I've learned as an artistic director, is that you're you're really playing the long game. Right, this idea that I really want to do this show or I really want to work with this director or this actor or this designer. Well, if not now, you know, like the mantra is always maybe next year, right? Like that you can actually think of things. And we certainly, over the pandemic, a, a lot of artists have looked at work that has been postponed, that has been shelved for a while. Um, but that is intrinsic in programming, right? Like there's times when you really want to do something and you think, well, not this year, maybe next year. So I, I think that's a, a subtle distinction. Uh, I think more profoundly, Quinn and Kara, um, I actually don't think this is about artistic direction. I think it's about the essence of theater. That's my bias. I think theater is ultimately solely about the postponement of the ego because you're telling someone else's story, right? And, and, and that 
it takes a great act of selflessness. You're, you're both performers. You know what that's like to lend your body, your soul, your life experience to channel the story that's being told through you. Um, so I, I, I think, I think it's, it's harmonious. This idea of, of we need to rally, we need to do something together. We need to postpone our own interests and desires for the sake of something greater. I think it emanates from the very nature of theater. And so with the, that sort of idea of postponing and sort of moving things around and trying to continue with some forward motion, what were some of the setbacks and how do you navigate those within, you know, a theater setting, trying to give people work, trying to keep your theater alive and open and keep audiences engaged even when you're unable to put on something live? I agree that there's a, a long game to to this role in terms of planning. It is community based and your communities are varied. So you want to take care of your of your acting company, you want to take care of your crew and have them be employed, but you also you have to take care of your audience and and of course your board and like all these elements that are so I was able I inherited one season, I programmed at one successful season and then had the next one cancelled. So mm-hmm. The hiatus that was given to us in terms of programming um, had a lot of blessings from from our end. I had a lot of time to learn about who we are and, and dedicate myself to how it can serve the community and how we can leave this place better than we found it. Mm-hmm. That's sort of one one piece of it. The pivoting was it was exciting at times. I, I often refer to it as um, as like Sisyphus pushing the boulder to the top right. of the mm-hmm. mountain like because we would we'd be like oh we have this great idea okay six concerts each of them will feature communities and how they tell stories through music and dance like it can't just be north american musical theater it's like how do other cultures explore telling stories through music and dance that's what we do and it was like so we identified these six concerts that we would do we applied for a grant and it all got canceled <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah but the work was to me, really worth it. Like mm-hmm. I got introduced to communities and introduced to other companies that we were going to co-produce with. And although it was tragic and so frustrating, um, each one of those pushes of the boulder to the top of the mountain was really worthwhile. We noticed that all the high schools were tragically canceling the things that were going to improve kids' mental health. So like basically physical education and music. So they would still go to class for everything else, but oh, but we can't play a trumpet. I was oh, like, are yeah. you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. And and then some teachers, bless their hearts, pivoted and they were outside or they had the covers or they just, they worked their butts off yeah. to make it happen. While I, others I ran went, an improv club that was on the football field. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> like it was, yeah, pivoting was wild. But because as you're saying, like all these things that you have, these skills of like communication of your feelings, which is something that I wouldn't say is developing for kids. It's developing for the world. I know lots of adults who don't communicate their Mm -hmm. feelings well and manifest in a different way instead. Especially when you're a young person. I felt this way when I was a teenager, preteen, was that a lot of my identity came with the music that Mm. I listened to. And that was how I sort of found my way and identified myself. So I think when you, especially in musical theater, when you get that story put into words and you go, that's my story. (laughs) It it can be so uh, healing or changing, stirring, whatever whatever it is. is. You feel seen and feel heard Mm -hmm. and all these sort of elements that can get you through. The micro musical project for students, which was a replacement of our scholarship program where we go and see high school mm. musicals and then give them awards. Like, oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah. And it's yeah. one of my favorite things to do because a lot of people go like, really, you want to go see a bunch of kids do musicals? I'm like, yes, yes. that's exactly what I want to do. And so because they had lost all of that, we created the, the Manitoba Micro Musical Project for students. And this is where we were able to reach out to Brandon as far north as Dauphin and like where all of a sudden we had access to all these schools and teachers who wanted support mm-hmm. to go digital, essentially. Right. And they could do whatever they wanted. And there were, it was not product based. So they weren't some of them eventually did like movie premieres where they like they sent they put it on YouTube and then they brought popcorn to everyone's houses. Oh. And then they all had like a premiere night over Zoom kind of thing where others they just people got to do monologues and express themselves from home. And then ultimately we had this this girl in Brandon, Kiera Tameo, 
who wrote a song about losing the drama room. And she just walked through an empty drama room and she just writ, wrote, written this song expressing how it felt she was graduating and right. she's like, was she ever going to have this again? And, and then we were able to, uh, in one of our other pivots, which was um, our Pot of Gold concerts, right. that she closed right. the night. So we brought her out and uh, Paul DeGers composed her, her single piano and her single voice with a band of, a professional band of six and six uh, singers backing her up. Oh my God, it was absolutely beautiful. Uh, pivoting, I know, in, in terms of your, your roles as, as ADs and, and what some of the larger changes were during the pandemic for your company specifically. I know earlier I talked about the long game and how sometimes you're postponing something. I'm not naive about it. The first show we had to cancel was a show that was touring from Australia. And they, they were very smart. They saw what was coming and they, they contacted every venue that they were visiting and said, we need to get back home because we think the border is going to close. And they flew back to Australia. So, and that show, the likelihood is won't be touring internationally for another three, four, five years. So sometimes there are things that you, that you lose. There's no denying that, but it's, for me, it's about what the journey there is. I can tell you that after that, after the end of that season, where we canceled the last two shows of the season, um, we had some really, really profound conversations with our staff about how we wanted to approach uh, announcing the next season. And we, together, we made a choice um, to go towards what we called measured optimism. And it's that we were very transparent with families, with schools, that we were announcing all of these shows that we wanted to do and that we would play it by year, month to month. And that's how we sort of weathered the first year. And yes, the truth is most of it got canceled. We didn't really have anything on our stage. Uh, we went digital in some cases. We really leaned into developing some of our new work that was supposed to be in that season. It bought us that extra time to see it through. And I can tell you that that particular piece, Frozen River, is now having a national tour this next season because of all of that additional time that was invested. Congratulations. In it. You know, if you're, if you're looking for that silver lining for those positive things to come out of it, it was the time to really invest in those pieces. And then when we came to the current season, or the season, I should say the, the season that just wrapped up, um, we said we took that measured optimism approach. We said everything we're going to do. I think uh, audiences and artists have been very kind and generous and gone along for that uh, on that ride with us for a year i think we we shifted at that point and we said we are just going to look at discrete chunks and it's partly connected to this notion that vaccines were being rolled out so you know we said in the fall we'll we'll go digital we'll do an outdoor show in december yes we did an outdoor show in december and then we will in the new year start opening the theater step by step bit by bit so that was sort of our journey through this past year. And you can see that beyond sort of the shifts from one show to the other or going digital or thinking of a new program, um, there, were, there were those fundamental discussions around what do people need? We, we are in service of an audience. We're in service of our community. What do parents need? What do families need? What do teachers need at this point in time? You know, I have three kids myself and I knew what it was like to be homeschooling and, and all of those challenges. So we were always looking for what is it that families need in this moment in time? And I, I, I was an audience member for that outdoor December. Oh, as so yeah. <laughs> it was it was a wonderful. I, I agree. Time. I think that was a super cool move. And um, it provided a safe place for people to experience the magic of what you do in in wh what I think is one of the most beautiful places in our city. That had been in my wish list from like my first year in Winnipeg. Ah. Where I, went, I would love to do an outdoor show in the winter. It's silly, <laughs> but probably shouldn't. But, you know, it was on that long list of things. Because here's the other piece that is quite unique to MTYP is that as we were having conversations with health officials, as we we're talking to patrons, as we we're talking to artists, um, the focus was always on adult audiences. And one of the things that we actually had to say to public health officials at a meeting was, what about those of us who work primarily for children? Because everything you're saying is based on a vaccination timeline for adults. 
And the answer we got is add three to six months to everything we're saying because it'll be a different timeline. Wow. So it was that that piece around sort of that advocacy for children, which is really tied into how we work. But at the same time, sort of realizing, right, if we're going to do that, here's the perfect opportunity to do that silly outdoor show in December because that's when we will we were expecting that we would just be starting to move into gathering again. That's really interesting. Um, be, I'm thinking about, especially because live theater sort of went poof for a couple of years too, <laughs> um, is that you would both mention that um, for young audiences, your stages are a lot of the, is the introduction to theater for young audiences. And so have you noticed a uh, a difference in how children are reacting to theater now, those who may have not ever seen theater and grew up the first few years of their life in a pandemic or anything? Is there Has there been a change or does it feel sort of similar to what it was? As, as a parent of a 13-year-old who was, you know, 10 when the pandemic started. Has it been that long? Yeah. Wow. Uh, we were always the last theater to do anything. Like, Sometimes we were asked to lead the way in some respect because we had an open air venue and we felt like we could have audiences. Um, but in terms of having a season, you know, we're always sort of at, at the tail end of things. And so I would say that the kids, for example, that auditioned for the hockey sweater, we started that journey in January. And those kids, they've been back in dance. They've been back in soccer. They've been back in hockey. And the parents of those kids have had them, were driving them to those things. They were doing them in masks, not masks, whatever, right? They were ready. Yeah. They were so ready. And so the the largest sort of, uh, what, what would you say, like an obstacle to get over were generally with uh, the, the older, the audience or the artist was to get over the hurdle of getting back out there. Right. So the kids were like, they were jonesing. I can tell you that when I was talking about cancellations and shifting to digital or all those um, changes we had to make, that was for our main stage programming. Our school continued to run all the way through the pandemic. That's awesome. We had classes in person, sort of following the the rules that they were implementing in schools at various points. We structured everything so that at a moment's notice, if the rules change, which they did, we could shift to virtual classes. So we were nimble that way to be able to stay in person, then as necessary, go you know, into virtual, back to in-person. So I think that echoes what you were saying, is that children and young people really needed the theater. When I think of that song you were describing about, you know, the empty drama room, they needed that sense of connection. Um, and I think parents also needed to give that to their children. <laughs> so, right. so I agree 100%. They were really wanting to engage th that way. Have you noticed in your audiences, too, of a difference in behaviors? Because I certainly remember returning to theater and... It was like, can we laugh? Yeah. You know? Because you're so, you've been so used to kind of going at a screen for years yeah, right. that even being in a space where the actors are probably silently begging the audience to interact with you, they don't, you don't know. You don't know if it's okay. You don't feel comfortable, especially a younger audience who've maybe never experienced it and their only experience is on a digital um, platform. How do you get people to interact with your, you again. Well, I wanted to add to this, and I'd love to hear what Pablo thinks. What I want to add is what you said about masks and that we have a generation of kids who lacked the experience of like, I'm not a child development know, therapist. You're a, you're a grown person. I'm, a grown, I'm not a child, <laughs> I'm not but a I'm also not a, a child you know, development therapist or anything. So I can't speak to what it means to have faces covered mm -hmm. while you're developing your social skills. Mm -hmm. and, and then the second part is that, like, I don't think theater is ever at risk. I think, you know, when the zombie apocalypse happens, we're we're going to, in a cave, do a play about it. Yeah, That's, that's the first the thing, thing we're, to do. Totally. <laughs> and, and like when the power goes out, what are we going to do? We're going to do a play. Like it's not going anywhere. Yeah. But we are in direct competition with Disney Plus and Netflix and screens and the fact that kids are handed phones at such an early age. It's disturbing. Oh, yeah. So the interaction of live theater with faces telling so you're you're in a shared experience with whether you're you're going to laugh as a group which is a, sort of a magical thing while real people stand on stage and pretend for you like it's a really ancient yeah. thing right yeah, yeah. that um I think we all connect with and don't necessarily have the words for our audiences here at Rainbow 
are in an outdoor venue seeing The Wizard of Oz or The Hockey Sweater. I didn't find a huge, I think I think because we were sort of the last to produce. It's right. like people, people were getting back at expect. it. One thing that I've noticed that I haven't seen before too frequently is the amount of direct audience to artistic director interaction that starts the show. Uh. And I've seen both of you speak at the beginnings of shows introducing kind of what's going to happen in a way that is a little bit more inviting. Is that intentional or is that part of this, trying to get audiences in? Is that just something you've been doing this whole time? Uh, that's just another question I have. I will say, Quinn, that's something we've always tried to do. I think there's so, like, I, I always believe that the work that I do cannot be done in isolation of the audience. And it's one of my opportunities to actually connect with the audience directly. So I don't know that that has been an adjustment. But I will offer this because Carson was talking earlier about access to streaming. And I hope that my oldest will not be mortified by me sharing this story. But uh, we were, like many families, uh, watching something on a screen. And after, like, it'd been a few days of this happening, I realized, and I said, you know, to be clear, my children are theater rats. They've been in rehearsal halls since they were three months old. So they totally get theater, right? But what was starting to happen was that jokes were being cracked during the show and there was a lot of conversation a lot of commentary which you know the screen allows you to do but what i said is here's what's fascinating about it it's happening whenever something affects you you're commenting when it's making you laugh you're commenting and trying to laugh it off when you're feeling something when when the work is actually reaching you and affecting you and that's something you can't really do in theater so the heads up was when we start going back to theater, be prepared because you're not going to have that little shield of cracking that joke, of saying that thing, to not feel the thing that the work is making you feel. That's the beauty of theater, right? Like it's going to force you to, yeah. to experience it in real time. Now, does that mean that when we had like Doodle Pop on our main stage for the little ones, children were not getting up and screaming in delight? <laughs> and I mean, I may or may not have actually seen a young girl fall off her chair because she was having such a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. wonderful that it's still. Yeah, happening. I almost fell out of my chair watching Doodle oh, Pop. Oh, Doodle Pop! Was, <laughs> Doodle Pop! Was, Doodle Pop! Doodle Pop was a bop, is what I'm trying to say, and it's it's a wonder why I got mixed up with my words. Yeah, I mean that's exciting, and it, like it, it is really wonderful to hear these the positives that of like coming back that didn't feel like such a a challenge at least in your particular cases it's also just nice to hear the positives of the pandemic because i know we focus on the negatives because there were so many but i think these pivots and these things that people were able to do and create during this time have made a huge difference in so many lives and and people who have not been able to experience theater ever are finally getting the chance whether for financial barriers, geographical barriers, whatever it is, they finally get to experience theater and, and are being invited into a world that they didn't have access to. So I think it's it's been it's been an interesting one. I'm not saying it was a good thing. I don't think it was a good <laughs> really? thing. I know. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> the pandemic was bad. Let me get That's that out there. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that, that is it. Like, because there is that immediacy. You mentioned, Pablo, that you take away that screen and you're the intimacy of audience to performer is, uh, I'll use the word palpable. It is, you can feel it. And that means that all those moments that are emotional or evocative get amplified because there's no hiding behind something. But in the same way, as, as intimidating as I think that can sound, it's also when I'm thinking about like the pandemic, I watched a lot of movies and TV shows and the screen was comforting. But the best things I if I'm trying to think back fondly on the best things that happened that weren't like, you know, video games or within a screen or whatever. It's none of that stuff. It's we took to playing nightly card games, mm. uh, you know, when when Kara and my mom and I, we all lived together. We'd play like crazy eights, basically nightly or we'd build a puzzle uh, and just like there'd be background music and we'd just be talking. And there's something to that immediacy and that intimacy that to something that is really really i don't want to say it's boring necessarily to be playing cards but it's different and while the screen is comforting i find at least personally like the reality uh of a situation is kind of what makes it so special and in theater the the imperfection 
of theater is what makes it special of like you know i come from an improv background as well but it's no that you're never going to see the same show twice Mm -hmm. basically in theater have you noticed audiences or maybe new audiences or was there like a flood back uh moment for your companies where you were thinking oh now people are really ready to see it because i know in for some cases there's probably like the trickle of people or they want to come see something but not all of them are comfortable was there a moment yet or are you anticipating a moment where you're going to have audiences either back to normal or above normal i Normal doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> but back to what it was. Um, is that something that uh, you think might happen, that you look forward to happening, or are there other shifts or things that you're uh, expecting instead? I mean, I'm confident, based on how The Wizard of Oz is doing right now, that in the years to come, we will be working the way that we used to work. And we're blessed to have gone through a global pandemic at a time where we had the innovation Uh, of what can keep us healthy, but also that we have heated homes and cooled homes and the ability to chat with Pablo over this technology. Obviously, this is the best time in history to have gone through a global pandemic. But I think the blessing was that, holy smokes, know what we learned is that this kind of interaction where we're seeing each other Mm -hmm. in a room together is really valuable. I think we already have the evidence that people, particularly families, because I think those of us with kids, we were challenged early on to find activities for our kids to have extracurricular. Right. So they're mm-hmm. in music lessons, they're going to dance. And as soon as things could open, we sent our kids because we also needed the break as parents. <laughs> so it's like I was confident that families could come. And then being an open air venue is, I think, also psychologically and, and actually physically more healthy in this time in our history. So I would say MTYP is a little different because our model is predicated also on working with schools. Mm-hmm. Right. There were no field trips. Uh, we were still waiting to hear whether schools are going to continue uh, going on field trips. You know, like, and, and it brought about one of the strangest things I had to deal with in the pandemic. Our model is so predicated on working with schools that in our agreements, in our labor agreements, there are actually stipulations that so many of our shows have to happen during the daytime, as opposed to other theaters where you can have a lot of evening shows. We normally do one evening show during a run uh, of a play, and then we do a few weekend shows for families. But most of our shows are during daytime with schools coming into the theater. When there's no field trips, we were actually finding ourselves in a position where I never thought I would have to do the math on this of saying, how many shows do we have starting before four o'clock? Because there's a ratio we need to meet, you know, which I would have never seen coming. But because we had to fundamentally adjust our business model because the only opportunities that we had to interact with children and young people were through public shows, through family shows. After school. So that's something else that's going to change quite a bit in the coming year, we hope. And we'll see. We'll, we'll see because like the work that teachers have been doing in schools, you know, the last two years, Quinn, you know, at first hand, you've been in those in, in school and it's been Herculean, you know, and uh, well, we're hoping I that mean, we can yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not you, Quinn. Yeah, you've you definitely you not me. <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen it. I mean, that is good to hear, though. Like, I mean, that speaks to the adaptive nature of things. But then, obviously, there's in some cases you're moving back to some previous models when you're allowed to. But we are curious, what are things? Also that you've, you because you've highlighted some positives, what are things that you think that were positives that you want to keep and stick to that came out of innovation or adaptation because of a problem? Well, my board really wants me to do another outdoor show. So. <laughs> I love the outdoor show. It was, it was really that, nice. It was very special. I really yeah. liked the hot chocolate. Oh, yeah. And it was great But, but the, the, the show was really good, too. <laughs> hey, this is one of the joys of the work I do. We actually have a card, an old card from a student that said, or from a, from a child who came to a public show, saying the show was really good, but the cookies were better. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm used to that. Don't worry. <laughs> Beyond the outdoor show, I think, you know, digital access to programming we had. And by that, I mean, like our school programming, we had uh, uh, children who, you know, for whom it would be too long of a drive to come to Winnipeg to take a class who started to tune into classes. Um, I think that was a real, uh, a really positive thing. Uh, we also have to be aware of some access concerns. There are uh, immunocompromised children for whom like that personal interaction that we love may not be the best path for them. So those are some of the things that we're keeping as well. I do need to do my bit on digital theater for you just because this seems like the right time. So 
Um, my wife has a problem with dairy. So here's here's my thesis. Digital theater is like vegan cheese. <laughs> By all accounts, the vegan cheese that Carrie is having these days is significantly better than the vegan cheese she was having five years ago. However, <laughs> she will tell you it's not close to the real thing. Yeah. So we need to stop pretending that <laughs> vegan cheese is the same as cheese. But the world does need vegan cheese because otherwise people like Carrie will never be able to have cheese. Of course. Mm -hmm. Somebody called it that forced marriage with digital that theater had, you know, during the pandemic. Um, it may not be the thing that we're after uh, with the experience of being in theater, but it does open up some doors for people who wouldn't be able to experience theater anyway. And I think that's that, that's one of the big takeaways for me when I talk about digital classes and digital programming, that's where one of the things that I think we would continue doing. I mean, I, I love the analogy also, because it, it really is where we're pretend we often are just pretending that it's something that it isn't, or that we're taking a show that's meant for a stage and we're adapting it. Uh, you know, it's like seeing the Mona Lisa on a JPEG isn't the same. I think I, I maybe here's what here's let me continue with your food analogy. <laughs> so I don't eat beef, but I love burgers. I love love burgers. And if I try and have like an impossible patty, it's trying to imitate beef, but doing a worse job at it. It's not bad. It's fine. It tastes good, in fact. Um, but if I have like a chicken burger or a black bean burger or something like that, it's made for being what it is. And I think one thing that I've noticed is there's theater that is a little bit more like the chicken burger or the black bean <laughs> burger that's starting to develop in that it's it's not theater that was written for stage adapted to Zoom. It's theater that is meant to be, uh, what's digitized. the word? Digitized or multimedia-tized. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you don't have to add ties <laughs> to I think you do. Um, and, the, and those are really good-tized um, <laughs> pieces of art because it, it's when you, when you, instead of trying to solve a problem by making an adaptation, instead writing something meant for that, if you see a program that's written as a Zoom call, for example, I know it's not necessarily thinking way outside the box, <laughs> <laughs> but then at least you're getting it in its its best medium yes. or its intended yeah. medium. Yeah. yeah. The space that we're creating for you to have conversations like this is something we want to continue. One of the things that we realized with Hockey Sweater is that we could remove the barriers for auditions that like auditions are scary. Obviously, kids have to be really brave to come out. Generally, those are kids who are already dancing at a dance school and they're doing recitals yeah. in front mm -hmm. of people. So you can tend to fall into uh, having the same kids all the time coming out. And that's great. They're amazing, amazing humans. But what we were able to do on Hockey Sweater is take our auditions into the community and do that both digitally and, and physically. And, uh, and I don't think we're going to stop doing that because that's, yeah. that's how you can say hi to people in a way that makes i don't know that's the first step yeah you found some stellar kids oh my god <laughs> oh, so it really worked out yeah. kids. i know they make you feel like the world's gonna be okay right like yeah. honestly like this yeah. in terms of positivity like these kids and their parents and their families it make you go like okay all right we're gonna mm -hmm. be all right. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's also nice to see seeing those kids. Like they're like, whoa! I know. Like those kids are whoa, <laughs> next level. You're like, oh, there's the future. Like, yeah. not even the future. There's the now. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I want to see them again. Exactly. Yeah, I'm intimidated. Yeah. Um, no, it's it is like a wonderful, wonderful thing to see that that sort of like broken down barrier to entry. Because that, I mean, that's another huge thing in this sector is. There is a barrier to enter for a lot of reasons, including like, I mean, the financial one is maybe, I don't want to call it the largest, but it, off the top of my head, it's probably the largest one. But there's also pro, like barriers in programming and barriers in getting, get, essentially, to put it plainly, getting butts in seats that aren't your typical subscribers. Is there something that you are particularly excited about in terms of, because I know, I mean, talking to both of you or seeing the mandates and the new changes to the companies, I know those are goals that, that both companies have uh, sort of at their forefront is is lowering barriers to entry, essentially. Uh, are the things that you're excited about particularly moving forwards uh, as well that you're, that you're doing or steps, steps that you're taking to, to lower those barriers or to remove them altogether? One of the first things that I was able to do with the team here is is expand our Manitoba First mandate. But that was to include writers, composers, and authors. 
So it was primarily right. who was on the stage. And so we were able to have success with Danny Shore's musical Strike mm -hmm. and also success in the public funding area to bring that hundred-year-old story into the 21st century. Right. And so they went back into it uh, with support from underserved communities to bring new voices into it. And so that we can start commissioning musicals from... So we have to do two things, right? We have to keep telling stories that exist mm -hmm. in a culturally inclusive way mm -hmm. so that because representation matters as you're welcoming in new audiences that you want kids to see themselves on stage. But we also need um, culturally specific shows. And so we have two or three in the works. One that's very public, which is Mabuhai, yeah. which is being written by Joseph Savillo. And so we also have a new commission coming out for something that we could do in the winter. And they're all going to be born of our community. And I think that is like, that's something that I feel like uh, my predecessors have built the stepping stones to get there. Like, it's not something that was like an aha moment for me. It's like, we, we're finally there. Right. And yeah. Right. That's very exciting. This might sound very strange coming on the heels of what Carson said about sort of redoubling and redefining the commitment to Manitoba first. Just hearkening back to the previous question, one of the things that we learned and that we're going to keep doing is that the development of new work actually can happen digitally, which actually frees you up to a much larger roster of artists you can work with. You know, if you were doing a couple of days of development on a show or a week of development, most of the time you wouldn't be bringing in um, a designer, a director from out of town. Well, maybe this can happen now, right? Um, or even if it's not about a specific work, I'm in conversations with um, companies around the world about work that they're creating. In, and it's not just about that particular work that they're creating, but what is the possible collaboration between MTYP and that company to create a new work in the future? So that's that's also been an interesting shift, which is different from what Carson's talking about. But at the same time, it's a it's a reality of, of what we've learned over the last two years. The cross-pollination of communication and art is still important. And like the pandemic has made every city very regional. It did force every A house to become acquainted with their community, yeah. Yeah. which I would say has been a problem across the country. I think one of the positives has been like, oh, hi, who are you? And, yeah. and, um, yeah. and what can you do for our company in, over the next few years? And I think there's going to be like more of that um, cr cross-pollination is sort of the best term I have for it in terms of, yeah. and it's, it's important because otherwise we won't be talking to each other. And, and we all benefit from new ideas. Yeah. And I think the marriage of the two is Maybe not. In some cases, you want the completely local. In some cases, you do want to bring things 100%. in. Mm -hmm. um, but even if I'm speaking, I mean, Carrie, you were in a show with MTYP uh, for uh, the show Alice with Bad Hats Theater. Incredible, incredible it's, What show. a great example, right? Yeah, it was wonderful. It was an incredible experience. And absolutely every artist in that show was equal in terms of their talent. So, But, but what you gain is, is friendships in a city that you may not... So when you go there, you have someone to talk to and you have a community to be introduced to. And I think cross-pollination is the right word for that, right? Like, I think that's a really great example. Um, the other piece that I will mention is MTYP always tries to do one international show every year. That, for me, beyond sort of the exposure to audiences of shows that we normally wouldn't see in Canada, for me, artistically, too, it's, it's really interesting to see how people create work for young audiences in other parts of the world. You know, like a show like Doodle Pop, which came from South Korea, doesn't get created that way here. There's a different sensibility to the work. Or, you know, when we had a, the Dutch theater dance company that was doing acrobatic things that I can't even conceive of, <laughs> you know, a few years ago. And again, that show probably doesn't get created in the same way in Canada. And I think that's also stimulating and if you can involve your local arts community in that conversation, it might open up other ways of creating work, which I always find really exciting. The model of theater for young audiences being way more universal than you could ever imagine hmm. is really what the treat is there. The 
access point is so low and the quality is so high simultaneously. <laughs> it's really, really special. So I highly recommend. I know that our the listeners to this probably go to Rainbow Stage. <laughs> highly recommend Rainbow Stage. They should go to Rainbow Stage, right? Of, of course. <laughs> of course they <laughs> should go to Rainbow here. Stage. Yeah. Please go to Rainbow Stage. Yeah, I think that's, that's I'm just reading my contract. Please <laughs> go to Rainbow <laughs> <laughs> um, but there but you guys just hit your contractual <laughs> obligation for saying Rainbow yeah, Stage. Yeah, like, yeah. Stage yeah. at least forty nine times. times. Yeah. <laughs> The light has gone off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is important to also note, like, MTYP as a company sounds like a company for children and mandated it is in a way a company for children. There has not been a point where I haven't been intellectually stimulated or thoroughly entertained or my jaw has dropped quite literally at things that I just haven't seen done before. We, I mean, we went to Doodle Pop oh, as, Doodle as Pop. three or four, four adults. adults. Yeah. yeah, four adults <laughs> together, no kids with us to see Doodle Pop surrounded by young, very young children, three to four-year-olds, and had a blast. Yeah. Like, had, each, like, like, when they'd ask to volunteer for things, we really want it. Like, it was, like, like, is it okay if we just put our hands up? <laughs> um, so that kind of stuff exists. Shows like that really, really do a good job for universal programming of something. And I'm sure that's similar. Uh, Wizard of Oz is like, here's an iconic classic thing. It's easy to to enter that there. Um, because if you don't know it, you're the, that's a great introduction to it. <laughs> yes. yes. If you do know it, you're coming you're to see a, a hit, right? In terms of programming, is that sort of universality a large part of it versus what your maybe your personal artistic tastes? Is there something that is like, this is good for this audience? It, does your audience maybe in that way, like take a front seat role? You know, a lot of people ask me if we're going to do, you know, insert musical here. And I'm like, well, I love it, obviously. But no, that's yeah. not. We're in a park. People can hear the show on the outside. So I think the, the I think. The most swearing we've had on stage was rent. Right, and yeah. but that's obviously something that you'd want to avoid in a public park. And and with two thousand seats, the more people you alienate, the less people are in your Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I also learned that um, in speaking to rights holders that certain titles in cities over a million, you will fill the house. So if you're if you're looking at musicals like producers or spam a lot that are like really culturally specific in terms of like they have a following like Mm -hmm. that, it costs the same as Beauty and the Beast. But one third the people are going to come. Right. And so you just can't do it. And so, yeah, I mean, we're constantly putting our love for what we do aside i would say and you're thinking about well to circle back to the fact that like we're trying to develop audiences and strengthen our our company and build our community so like there's no answer like we're just trying to figure it out yeah 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 Yeah. i always say that i have the blessing of of always having worked in theater for young audiences and i say the word audience is built into what we do Mm -hmm. right like you know rainbow stage you know musical theater but we're like theater for young audiences so this consideration of audience is built into who we are um but i i also want to echo what carson said earlier that you know with shows like the wizard of oz or the hockey sweater you're bringing in people who may not have had an experience in theater before and you're trying to introduce them to that idea of what is it like you know in rainbow's case to be with two thousand other people having the same experience and responding to it together so i think that's why it makes perfect sense that both of these theaters would always have a consideration for programming for an audience, understanding what it is. And, you know, also, as, as Carson pointed out, physical space, right? Like rainbow stages in a park. So what does that mean? What kind of programming can you do in those spaces? Now, this is an interesting thing to me uh, from the position of programming, because another thing that happened in the pandemic was this massive political shift in that we all started paying a lot more attention to social dynamics, political dynamics. Uh, Maybe not all, I can't say that. I know a lot of people, you know, myself included, I love the idea of like activism and social change and things like that. Something I've been invested in for a long time, sometimes more necessarily than than for others. But what I'd say is there was a, with this massive shift, I'm sure there was on your parts, there's outside pressure then additionally to do this, this, and this. Is there consideration or was did there feel like pressure to do now, oh, do the show about reconciliation now? 
do the show about uh, Black Lives Matter now in a way that I'm not sure that necessarily how much it like affects, but I'm sure that that pressure has to be there or at least a little bit present when it comes to programming now with all this like social stuff. Is there an audience now saying like you have to do some like socially edgy stuff or whatever, even if that flies in the face of what a mandate is? Is that something that's felt from the AD perspective as well? Uh, is just a, a, a kind of question of mine post George Floyd, post Every Child Matter, not post anything. We're in the middle of all these things, but yeah, like is that something that's an additional thought uh, at this moment? You said, you know, I wonder if people ask you questions, and it's like when people ask questions, I say, do you know the work that we do? I'm happy to tell you about the work that we've been doing for decades. Not to say that there's no learning, not to say that there's no recalibration, to say that. The last two years have not changed fundamentally how we see and feel about certain things that that would be falling right like it has but really really for a, a theater that is focused on children and young people and reflecting their lives and that has a focus on access this work has been ongoing for a long time so you said like did you shift did you do the play about reconciliation now <laughs> That play was in development before the pandemic. Totally. It, it was something that is so built into the lives of young people that it's unavoidable. And that play, Frozen River, is sort of the second iteration of a collaboration between writers who did a, a similar work for even younger audiences in 2012. Right. So so you can see that this that the track record of this work shows that the work has been ongoing. And the reason I fell in love with the work for young audiences is that when I came across it, I can tell you my, my master's thesis was a Chilean absurdist play, nothing to do with <laughs> it. But it was after that, when I discovered this, this work, that I realized, wait a second, this is where those two things meet, where the art and the belief in the possibility for change actually meet. Because the truth is, once we're in our 20s and our 30s and on, our views of the world are more rigid they're not cemented but they are more rigid so working with an audience who is still shaping their view of the world who is still asking questions that is really exciting to me and i think that's why it is built into the work as well because you can actually ask the questions and get honest answers not learned answers for mtyp and for me as an artist that's how those calls for attention to these kind of social issues sort of connect to what we're doing. Totally. I have a different answer than Pablo's because although the work had been a part of the national conversation for as long as I can remember, I was and Rainbow Stage was confronted with realities that just were not in my field of view right, yeah. and our board's field of view. Right. The political landscape that I was using my platform? advocating, sure, that's, yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah, this platform that that I have. And then this cultural shift, this political shift, these discussions were earth shattering mm -hmm. for our community, for communities across Canada and across the United States. And so for Rainbow, we had a lot of work to do, but it was fascinating to discover that the majority, if not all, musicals that were representing underserved communities and people of color were either based around trauma and then on top of it, written by white people. So although that was probably the progressivism of that time, right. it's yeah. like, well, what, what time are we in now? Yeah, exactly. and I, I, I did South Pacific that was like, it won a Pulitzer for <laughs> its, for its sure, progress. Sure, you're right. And, but it's like a pretty deeply, by today's standards, offensive show, right? Like it, it does change. It's ever-changing. There's a lot of things <laughs> to consider. Oh, um, tons. Right? So like, it's basically like forefront of everything that we talk about in mm -hmm, terms of cool. programming. Yeah. And what I love about what we do, if we tell the right kind of stories, it will bring people to the theater that maybe didn't feel welcome before. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just wanted to respond to what you said earlier, Carson, about, you know, Rainbow has a lot of work to do. So does NTYP. So does every theater in the country. Because the work of overcoming oppression will never be done. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I, and I think when you touched on it, that, that the lines will move and they should move. And that work will be ongoing which doesn't give us an excuse to say, well, 
if it's never going to be done, let's stop doing it. You have to continue to engage with it. And I think that has been the thing that theaters have realized in, in this time. It's, it's that this is a long-term commitment. It's not about the next two years. It's not about the next five years. It is about an ongoing commitment to overcoming oppression in whatever form may be manifesting at that point in time. The achievable outcome by the time you get to it isn't going to be the achievable yeah, outcome it's anymore. Now it is keep ever moving like, forward. And, yeah, and, it, yeah, should, yeah, and right? it should to be right. Yeah, it, like it's it's more it's work, but it is exciting, and so well, it's super exciting. And like this is the positive, right? Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it what the confrontation was uh, painful. It was uncomfortable and painful. That pain is worth it, right? Yeah, positives outweigh than like how hard it was mm-hmm. totally uh there's a canadian educational philosopher megan bowler who has a thing called the pedagogy of discomfort the exciting thing that comes from the pedagogy of discomfort is like learning because it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. you know what i mean like we let's say something really controversial or really uncomfortable and then let's just unpack why is it when i say this word or this word or talk about this idea everybody's sort of like we stiffen yeah Yeah. let's unpack and it might be for different reasons but by unpacking that we do get to a place that is like really comfortable not even comfortable but progress Mm -hmm. um and exciting in some cases yeah and i think that um the idea of continuously leaning into that discomfort it's not because we've said it, it there isn't really an end goal end game with the the progress and the journey of progression i guess <laughs> yeah. it is you just have to continuously keep going and seeing companies that are willing to do that and continuously lean into those uncomfortable conversations is i think the progress yeah. that's all that i think a lot of communities are just wanting to see is someone mm-hmm. who's willing to to take on those conversations time and time again and not just do one work and say we did it yeah. you know totally. yeah yeah <laughs> Final question, uh, lightning round. What? <laughs> what uh, Four, 27. <laughs> what is the most exciting thing happening in theater right now? Could be local, could be across the world, could be... Uh, you could do past or present. I, I said right now, but I'll open it up. If we circle back to the, sort of the, the topic of this conversation, we've rediscovered how nimble theater can be. And I think artists have rediscovered how nimble they can be as well. And I think there's something really exciting about about that being applied to the work moving forward. But I'm curious whether we've all learned something about the thing that we love, that we lost for two years, and whether better art will come from it. Yeah. I don't know. That's beautiful. I love that. (laughs) Follow that up, Carson. Yeah, go ahead. It's about those kids in hockey sweater, right? Yeah. They are the most exciting thing to me. They're they're young. They're fi- they're between 8 and 15 and they're having these difficult conversations in their dressing rooms. Yeah. Like they are the future. Yeah. And the high school musicals coming back. I can't wait to see the next generation and to do what we can to build a path for them to share their voice and they're everything to me. That's incredible. Wow, what a beautiful note to end yeah, on. I think that yeah. basically <laughs> ends it here for all of us here at Rainbow, Rainbow Speaks. I want to thank you too. Your rapport, your love for our community, your intelligence, and your, I don't know, the way you listen. This is... Uh, really amazing and I want to and I want to thank Daphne and Duchess yes, yes. thank you our dream, dream team dream team well really all of you it's two years ago I don't know if I ever could have imagined that this would be happening and so I'm very grateful yeah and thank you for inviting me and my toss to you is that this episode should be called Rainbow Speaks and Empty Way Peacock <laughs> Very nice. I love it. That's it. Uh, Thank you to Pablo. Thank you to Carson. I'm Quinn Joseph. I am Kara Joseph. And this has officially been Rainbow Speaks. Have a little bit of optimism Like a rainbow through a small glass prism We want to search, we want to look To listen, to see what we find Sure, we've got a lot of traditions but we're interested in your new renditions help us understand what we've been missing for all of this time rainbow speaks rainbow speaks
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Rainbow Speaks. Our hosts are Quinn and Kara Joseph, and today's special guests were Carson Natras and Pablo Felicius Luna. For the Digital Studio, I'm Daphne Finlayson, your Technical Creative Director, and our Content Creative Director is Duchess Cayetano. Music for the show is provided by Duncan Cox. This podcast was recorded and produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional home of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We gratefully acknowledge the support of the Canada Council for the Arts in making this podcast possible. Thank you so much.